Okay, so let's get back to the first point that Lewis makes in this essay. He says that the critics lack literary judgment. And I want to read a quote from the essay. Lewis says, A man who has spent his youth and manhood in the minute study of New Testament texts and of other people's studies of them, whose literary experiences of those texts lacks any standard of comparison such as can only grow from a wide and deep and genial experience of literature in general, is, I should think, very likely to miss the obvious things about them. Yeah. So, I, and that is so critical. Mm-hmm. This is the issue of expertise. Right. Because the experts are usually so concentrated on one thing that they miss the broader issues that contextualize that. Thing. Right. And this is why experts, if you study the literature or an expertise, mm-hmm. are so often wrong mm-hmm. about almost everything right. that they predict. They, they may have that limited expertise that gives them the ability to look at things in a very careful way within their field. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you're sort of step, and this is a point that Socrates made too, as soon as you start stepping out of that field, even remotely, you start to have an overconfidence that makes you fail over and over and over again. Um, And so Lewis, I think, is very properly making the point here that while you may indeed have spent your entire life studying something in the Bible, Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that everything you have to say about that is correct. Right. In fact, it tends to make a lot of what you say about it garbage. Right. <laughs> and, and it's something I don't remember if you pointed out this past Monday that the critics of the curse tablet, they took it out of context. Yes. Constantly. In yeah. fact, the, the entire case that they build is taking it out of context, right. refusing to acknowledge that it was found on Mount Ebal in right. the altar that Adam Zertal believed was uh, Joshua's. Joshua's altar. Yeah. Whether or not it is, I don't care. Mm-hmm. The point is, there is a decent amount of real scholarship, right. factual information right. that contextualizes this find in a very important place. Right. right. And they want to ignore the context and fasten mm-hmm. on these small issues to the exclusion of the broader picture. And that's what experts do. Right, like telling the story of the whole forest through one tree, yeah. or not even a tree, maybe <laughs> the leaf of a tree that they found. Yeah, yeah, or, or you know, cutting down a tree and believing that mm-hmm. because you can read the rings, yeah. that you understand the story of the entire forest. forest. exactly. Now, you may be able to gather really important information mm-hmm. from that. And Lewis actually makes that point in this essay. He's saying, I don't disagree with everything the critics have to say, but we should be skeptical of what they're saying mm-hmm. because, in some sense, they're experts. Right. Because right. they don't have the broader view like he's talking about here, Mm -hmm. of the literature, the literary world, the way in which literature is done. So he's saying there's a bit of an Mm -hmm. advantage to being a generalist as opposed to someone who's concentrating on one particular thing. Right, right. And then you were saying they're an expert in one area, so that makes them an expert in everything, right? right? Okay, so it's sort of like what Lewis says in the next section how they the critics disclaim the historicity of the narratives 
let me read what he says. If he tells me that something in a gospel is legend or romance, I want to know how many legends and romances he has read, mm-hmm. how well his palate is trained in detecting them by the flavor, not how many years he has spent on that gospel. Right. In what is already a very old commentary, I read that the fourth gospel is regarded by one school of critical thought as a spiritual romance, a poem, not a history, to be judged by the same canon as the Book of Jonah, Paradise Lost, or more exactly, John's favorite, Pilgrim's Progress. (laughs) Oh, that is so painful Painful. to me. (laughs) Because, I mean, and of course he's talking here about the Gospel of John, and the, the particular critic that he has in mind has his ideas about the nature of the Gospel of John, mm-hmm. that it is written as a fantasy. Right, and, right, right. And Lewis says, but look, I've been reading fantasies. I write them myself my whole life. And oh, yeah. <laughs> trust me, this does not have the flavor of a fantasy. Right. And, and I think one of the most telling quotes from this section of the essay is when Lewis says in relation to this claim, Let me see if I can find it here. (laughs) When a critic says something like, we should judge the gospel of John as we judge Pilgrim's Progress, Lewis stops and says, after a man has said that, Mm -hmm. why need one attend to anything else he says about any book in the world? (laughs) Because he says a little later, the insensitiveness Mm -hmm. is crass. And that is an understatement. Because the Gospel of John is not even in the same universe as, as, I want to say Paradise Lost, as Pilgrim's Progress. (laughs) And and if you want to compare those two, why should I ever listen to anything else you have to say about these things? Right, right. Who is that critic? Is that Rudolf Boltman? It was not Boltman. Okay. It was another critic. It's actually in the footnote on okay. the essay. It's not one of the more famous ones. It was written sometime around the turn of the century, from 19th okay. to the 20th century. So he says it's already an old text by the time he picked it up and read it. Okay. But in the beginning of the essay, he says, look, I'm rather ignorant about right. this modern scholarship. Right. I've read bits and pieces of it, but I've never been able to really get into reading or studying it. So he Mm -hmm. says, I'm ignorant about it. I acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. And then he says this, which it it fits so well with my own experience of the academic world. But the skepticism is the father of the ignorance. It is hard to persevere in a close study when you can work up no prima facie confidence in your teachers. Mm -hmm. And that's been my problem with the higher scholarship ever since I first encountered it. It's like I start reading it, and it's so not foreign. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not that it's foreign. It's that it seems to be playing with things like a child plays right. rather than seriously grappling mm-hmm. with the issues. Yeah. And as a philosopher, throughout my philosophical period, I've, I've studied philosophers, and there are those that I, I start reading, Plato, Aristotle, Sartre. Hegel. Yeah. Uh, and I start reading them and I'm either fascinated and t- interested and then drawn into it right. or I get a page or a chapter or 
two chapters in or halfway through them, and, you, and I can't. You've had enough. I, I can't read it anymore right, right. because I've lost confidence in, as Lewis says here, the teachers. Right. It's mm-hmm. like how, I, I don't. I, I can't buy it anymore from you. Right. Right. And this is that feeling I get from the critics of the mounted ball defixio. Yeah. Which that kind of takes us to the next quote I wanted to bring up, and this is by Rudolf Bultmann. Uh, now, who was Rudolf Bultmann? He was an early 20th century theologian. Okay. In in his own thinking, he was actually criticizing liberal theology. Okay. And he considered himself sort of an existential theologian. Mm-hmm. But in any case, he's become known for famously demythologizing right. the scriptures. Right. And here in, in in this quote that Lewis includes in the in the essay, the personality of Jesus has no importance for the gospel message either of Paul or of John. Indeed, the tradition of the earliest church did not even unconsciously preserve a picture of his personality. <laughs> and then Lewis goes on to say, so there is no personality of our Lord presented in the New Testament. Through what strange process has this learned German gone in order to make himself blind to what all men except him see? What evidence have we that he would recognize a personality if it were there? Yes. And this kind exactly. of reminds me of Chris Ralston. You know, he goes through so much, such a process to say there's nothing at all, not even that eh, it doesn't seem to be, or right. I'm, or, I'm or not sure, or whatever. Yeah. He says there's nothing there. There's nothing there. Point blank. Yeah. And I think your equation there on this point is like spot on, dead on. Because, as Lewis says, if you can't recognize in the New Testament, and particularly in the Gospel of John, the personality of Jesus, if you don't see a real personality there, you're not going to find a personality in any of the Western world in the history. Right. Because there are two personalities that stick out. Lewis makes another one, and I don't know much about Johnson. So he he says there's another one, too. Mm -hmm. But Lewis makes the point that there are two fundamental personalities that appear in the Western literary canon that as unmistakable persons, people, and they are Socrates Mm -hmm. as written of by Plato and And Jesus Jesus. as described in the New Testament. And if you don't find personalities there, you're not going to find personality anywhere in the literary canon. And in that way, I think too, in that YouTube video by I always forget the name of the Sean McDowell by Sean McDowell Mm -hmm. interviewing Chris Rolston. He said to Chris Rolston, is it possible that you have any biases here? (laughs) And he also asks for a contextualization of the discussion. And Rolston goes through a history of what we know (laughs) Mm -hmm. about language and the development of language and particularly in that quarter of the world. Yeah. And he lays it out very clearly, and then he denies that he has any presuppositions <laughs> that could possibly influence right. his opinion on this curse tablet. But he's just laid out this history mm-hmm. by which he excludes he, the possibility yeah. that this could be what it's claimed to be. Right. So he's using his presuppositional historical account, right. which is you know, pretty well-developed. We have a pretty good understanding of things, mm-hmm. but it's not perfect. Right. And anytime we claim as honest scholars mm-hmm. to have it sewn up, be really careful because yeah. chances are you don't. It's fall apart. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so he's using this history that he's just laid out as presuppositional evidence that this could not possibly be 
what it's claimed to be because there was no proto-Hebraic writing at that time period. The earliest that we know of is in the 9th century or 8th century, excuse me, 10th or 9th century BC. And therefore, this couldn't be that. Right. So don't tell me you don't have any presuppositional biases. Right. It's just not true. It's a lie. And probably... Mm-hmm. It's a lie that Chris Rolston has effectively told himself. Right. And so therefore he doesn't so he, think of it as a mm-hmm. presupposition. But those are the most effective presuppositions we have. Exactly. The ones that we hide that from we, ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move on to point two in the essay. Point two is they want us to believe that they can read between the lines. And Lewis says, these men ask me to believe they can read between the lines of the old text. The evidence is their obvious inability to read, in any sense worth discussing, the lines themselves. They claim to see fern seed and can see an elephant 10 yards away in broad daylight. (laughs) And again, this reminds me (laughs) what you're experiencing right now with this mount of ball research you've been doing. Right. And and this is that same issue that we talked about a little bit ago Mm -hmm. of the experts. Because the experts are so used, as Lewis says here, at straining at seeds. They yeah. look at everything in that, at this minute level. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they see all kinds of things there. And we human beings are adept at seeing patterns that may or may not be there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. part of the greatness of the human rational capacity is to recognize patterns when they're there. But because we're so good at recognizing patterns that are there, we oftentimes see patterns that aren't there yeah. and build all kinds of things on top of that. And Lewis is making the point that that's a lot of what modern biblical critics do because right. they're experts in the texts. They have shut themselves off from the broader context, yeah. the real facts that could help them like throw out portions of their imaginary theories. Yeah, yeah. And that's what Chris Rolston and Robert Cargill have done with this discovery of the Mount Ebald Fixio. They fasten on these small bits, those, what did he call them? Fern seeds. Right. And refuse to see the elephant 10 yards in front of them. Right, right. right. Now, again, it's worth saying, I don't know if this defixio is going to end up being what Scott Stripling and the other scholars have said it is. Right. I think it's likely that there's something there that Chris Rolston and Robert Cargill yeah, except, simply refused to I was to going to say, it's not even that <laughs> they're absolutely saying there is nothing there. Yeah, yeah the level of certainty. That's, that's what the issue is. Exactly. Yeah. It rises to an arrogance that yeah. only academic yeah. scholars rise to. Right. And then, <laughs> because the rest of us are a lot, a lot less certain about the right. world around us. <laughs> right. And there's no discussion. So that's just moved past this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what essentially they're doing Mm -hmm. is what they're accusing Scott Stripling of, of privileging theory Theory. over the facts of the find. Um, And he, Scott Stripling, made the point, he said, I have a presupposition. Right. I have a theory. Right. Yeah. He admitted that. Robert Cargill, in his interview with Myth Vision, made a huge point that Scott Stripling and the Associates for Biblical Research have a presuppositional bias with which they approach this and that they mm-hmm. announce it on their website. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least they're at aware least they of do theirs. <laughs> right? They're honest. You, you are refusing to yeah. face your own presuppositional bias, mm-hmm. and that makes and it all the more it. dangerous. Right. Okay, so let's get back to the essay. Here's the central point of the entire essay, wouldn't you say? 
what Lewis says here. Yep, I like that you make that this this the central point. Yeah. Yep. All theology of the liberal type involves at some point and often involves throughout the claim that the real behavior and purpose and teaching of Christ came very rapidly to be misunderstood and misrepresented by his followers and has been recovered or exhumed only by modern scholars. Yes. <laughs> In other words, we understand better than the people who actually wrote the text right. and the people who lived in the context in which the text was right. actually written. So we moderns are way ahead of everyone else. Mm-hmm. And this is, and we see Lewis alluding to this all throughout this essay, this is that same myth of evolution that we talked about earlier this year, mm-hmm. That when Lewis talked about the essay, The Death of a Great Myth. The Death of a Great Myth. Mm-hmm. Is that what it's called? Yep. Yeah. The Funeral. The, the Funeral, funeral that's of right, a Great that's Myth. Right. We always yes. call it death. Yeah. So the funeral of a great myth, which is the evolutionary idea that everything is starting small and growing bigger. And that's an underlying supposition that we bring to the world Mm -hmm. and we interpret the world in front. Once that becomes simple fact, which it does in their mind and not presupposition, Mm -hmm. then you cease to recognize it as anything you're bringing to the text. And it's just there. It becomes a fact you have to deal with. Just like Robert Cargill says, this is a a hunk of lead. That's all it is. Right, right. Without ever having to look at it in order to determine whether or not, in fact, it's anything more than that. Right. Okay, so back to that central point of the whole essay. One more quote by Lewis. One was brought up to believe that the real meaning of Plato had been misunderstood by Aristotle and wildly travestied by the Neoplatonists, only to be recovered by the moderns. When recovered, it turned out most fortunately that Plato had really all along been an English Hegelian, rather like T.H. Green. Yes. (laughs) And so we take our intellectual fads and we constantly reinterpret everything in light of those intellectual fads. Right. And fads actually happen within a broader context. That is also something, we call it the zeitgeist, mm-hmm. right? The spirit of the, age. of the age. And the spirit of our age is an Hegelian spirit, which we've been talking about on the Christian oh, atheist since the very beginning. Yeah. <laughs> and Even before the Christian of, atheist. Yeah. And part of that <laughs> is the notion that there is no transcendent. Yeah. Uh, in fact, that's the central issue of what I call the Hegelian zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. We've destroyed the transcendent. And so everything must be reduced to the imminent Mm-hmm. And that's a presupposition that we're bringing to the world. It's not right. something that we find there. It's not a fact. Mm-hmm. It's something we think about the world in which we live. Right, right. Oh, so actually picking up on that content, right? yeah, Aristotle was Aristotle. Plato was Plato. And probably mm-hmm. the best way to understand them is through an originalist understanding, mm-hmm. right? Just like in the constitutions, we conservatives tend to think the constitution should be read in light of the historical reality in which it was written mm-hmm. in order to interpret it. Right. Well, likewise with this, we shouldn't be taking the modern lens and putting it on all of these things right. and thinking that we have a definitive and better understanding than anyone else could possibly have. Right. All of these and that's years. the typical arrogance and hubristic way in which academics Mm-hmm. experts approach things. Yeah. And it's yeah. why they so often get things wrong. I guess in Jesus' time, it was the Pharisees. Yes. They looked back at the law of Moses and thought they had a... Everything sewn up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I am a Christian. 
with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.